it is it is really nice to be able to be together and thank you for coming to this uh, little seminar on uh, Sola Scriptura. <clears throat> the, the title is quite deceptive, the key to happiness. Now, I, I've been assured by uh, Steve that he said, now this, uh, this seminar is where you relax, Andrew, so you can take off the tie and you can get, get rid of the jacket and uh, the people that are coming, they're going to be very, very keen and very interested so you can just keep talking and talking and talking um so we'll do that (laughs) um this seminar is called the key to happiness and that can be a very Joel Osteen type of seminar. So I'm already very worried about you for wanting to come to this particular seminar. (laughs) Really, I think as Christians, we do struggle an awful lot with doubt and worry. Um, That drive that we were talking about in the Pharisee to perform so quickly, even after a true conversion can quickly consume us. And really, this book is not a rope to tie you up. It's a key to take off the handcuffs and to remind us that in Christ we can have, dare I say it, happiness. Happiness. But sometimes as Christians, we're so good at, you know, we, we talk about joy. You know, with, you know, as Christians, we have joy. But it's a very somber type of joy. <laughs> we can have happiness. Now, it looks very different in different circumstances. But certainly joy doesn't dismiss happiness. And I think most Christians that walk through their life frowning do so because they don't realize the fullness of the blessings that are provided in Jesus Christ. And especially the blessing of assurance. And so really that's what we're going to do. I'm going to give a wee bit of kind of foreground where we'll talk a little bit about uh, Sola Scriptura uh, and how that came to be such a central, not even central, the, the igniter of the Reformation. And then... Uh, once we've kind of laid that little bit of groundwork, we're going to switch to something much more important. And we're going to talk about assurance. And what this Bible tells us about our position in Christ. So let's pray and ask for God's help. And I'm going to try and uh, go through and it... uh, If there's anything that's confusing, if I start to get too excited and speed up, which is our normal temptation in Ireland, we talk far too fast, you just just give me a wee wave and I'll slow down. Or uh, just look confused like you do right now. (laughs) And we'll pray more. (laughs) Hopefully we can get to the end and then we'll open up for questions. I'm not saying I'll have uh, lots of answers. Uh, Sometimes I might just have to say, I don't know. But where... Uh, I can, hopefully I can try and answer some questions because this is a doctrine of just confidence in Christ. So let's pray and ask for God's help first of all. 
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this book. We do thank you that we have scripture in our own tongue, that we can open it and we can learn about you from it. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us not just to be consumed with putting this information into our head, but it would affect our life and practice. And we pray, especially now, that as we think about um, the centrality of scripture and the, the confidence that it gives us about our position before you, We pray that it would even meet the need of some in this room. That it would speak peace to our soul. That it would remind us afresh that we can be happy in Christ. Protect us from thinking of that as a bad word. Help us to taste something of the joy that is available to us because of the fullness of life that is granted to us in Christ. We ask for your help, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today, words are very cheap. It used to be only teenagers that communicated through head tilts, grunts, and that non-verbal stare. But today, we also have lost something of the the strength of communication. We show our affirmations for something by liking a post, by texting a smiley face. (laughs) Or if you're exceptionally impressed, we retweet a statement. It's a clicking culture. And I think we've lost something of the power of words. But I also think that our culture has also lost the sense that words can actually be true. Most people on their wedding day say, till death us do part. Yet for a number of people, that doesn't work its way out. That statement doesn't prove itself to be true. In business, you can make a promise to someone, but it doesn't count for anything until a contract is signed. The idea of a gentleman's agreement. You've heard of the gentleman's agreement? What is that? How did a world ever work with gentleman's agreements? We don't trust a person's word. And we don't trust a person's word because sadly most people do lie. Their word can't be trusted. And it seems that now people are less and less bothered about it. We just accept that is the way it is. I think it's because our words are now cheap that a lot of people open up their Bibles and approach this book with a, a tainted mindset that, that thinks of these words as cheap. Maybe not consciously, but we struggle to, to believe them with our hearts. We see this book as simply having good advice when it suits us. We pick and choose the bits that relate to our life. Well, my verse for today is this one. This is the one I'm living by. Well, no, you're living by this whole book. Or you're meant to be. But it's the way we think and the way that we operate. Psalm 119, verse 130 said, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. In other words, this book... 
It's how our mind is lit up. It's how we understand God. It's how we can know that God has done it all for us, as we thought about this morning. In the world of the 16th century, very few people had a personal copy of the scriptures. That just wasn't a thing. You, you didn't have a Bible in your house. This is, this is a privilege that you're sitting there with a Bible on your lap. That's not, that wasn't, I should say, a normal thing in the day of Luther. If you were in the presence of the Bible, it was probably read to you in a different language than the one that you spoke. Therefore, your only access to what the Bible actually said came from a priest who got up and he told you his spin on the text. He told you what he felt like it meant and the moral response that you should make to it. And in fact, even in the clergy, there was a hierarchy. And at the top, they decided how scripture was to be understood. And that would slowly be disseminated down the ranks. And it was wrong to question that authoritative interpretation that was passed down to you. So that meant that Christian doctrine wasn't anymore based on what does the Bible say. It was based on what does the Pope say. And what started the Reformation 500 years ago was not grace alone. It was not faith alone. It was not God's glory alone or Christ alone. Really what kick-started the whole thing was a reclaiming of Scripture alone. The appearance of Luther and his conviction that God's word was the measuring rod by which everything else, including the Pope and the church system, was to be tested, set the world alight. And it led to the rediscovery of many of those core, beautiful doctrines that we've been talking about uh, this weekend. This growing conviction was publicly declared at the famous Diet of Worms. Luther was summoned before the emperor and he turned up and all the church's high officials were there and there was a very real possibility that Luther was going to get executed. And what they did was they had a table in front and they put on that table all of Luther's writings, all of his works where he talked about faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone, all of these things. And they asked him, do you recant these writings? Luther, being a real dramatist, he asked for one more day. You know, let them sleep and kind of build up the excitement. And they came back the next day, seeing books on the table, and Luther entered into the, the bench and he spoke to the crowd. He was asked, do you repent? And he said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against my conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. The, the Bible says, the Bible says, was the rallying post for the Reformation. 
faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, for God's glory alone, that those things would set the world on fire, but they were all unlocked by sola scriptura. The Reformation movement started when the Bible was brought back onto center stage. Luther was insistent that it was this book that caused the Reformation. It wasn't Luther. He, he was a quirky guy. He was actually a very short man. Um, they talk about short man complex, don't they? There may have been a little bit of that with Luther, especially when you read his fiery writings. He, he, he's wild. But he made it very clear it wasn't his personality that made the difference. Rather, he said, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, we'll not talk about that, the world so greatly weakened the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. In the 1500s, it was this repositioning of scripture to let scripture speak that reformed the world. But I think today, going back to today, our cheap few of words has meant that this doctrine has again subtly been lost in the heart of the church. Rarely in our world is fact, fact, and truth, truth. What matters most is my preference. How I want to live. You think of how the media deals with ethical issues like abortion. It's personal stories that drive the conversation. It's nothing about facts. It's stories intended to engender sympathy. People make decisions on how they feel in the moment. The idea of a clear right and wrong is blasted as being bigoted and ignorant. And divine revelation is now a subjective thing. It's up to you. It's up to your tastes. You can choose the verse that you like rather than be held accountable to the whole book. Instead of scripture, some of us in this room maybe are controlled by rational thought. Now, this seems to, you know, when I put all the pros and cons on different sides, this seems to be the wisest decision to make, given the evidence, and that's what controls us. We, we, we are maybe controlled by the, the latest claims of science, and again, that's what controls us. And for some of you in this room, maybe that sounds laughable, but what really controls you is your feelings. You, know, you talk to the one you feel you should talk to. You come to church when you feel it's the right place for you to be. A lot of us, I think, are moved by our feelings. And some people, maybe in this room, like the, 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 the old young Luther of the Reformation, are controlled by tradition. You, you're, you're not crawling up stairs on your knees. But what your parents did, what your upbringing was, the, the values of the society uh, conservative Bakersfield that you've grown up in is what really shapes your opinions on things. Now all those things are different, very different, and they'll make you make very different choices in life. 
But what they all have in common, what reason, feelings and tradition have in common, is they're actually born out of self. It's my reason. It's my feelings. It's a tradition that I grew up in that makes that right for me. They're all human-centred rulers that we're trying to measure our choices against rather than God's infinite, eternal word. That type of self-controlled thinking leads to despair. I think that's why most Christians aren't happy. It can often lead to a crisis of faith. Or it can lead to the creation of little Pharisees. Christians need to remember that a true understanding of the world at large comes from what God has said in his word. Not what we think his word says. I need to forget how I feel in the moment. What I think is wise. And instead search this book to find out what God says I must do. I need to try and find out what God has clearly revealed in his word. The Bible is not just true. It is truer than anything else you have ever seen. And therefore it trumps your traditions. It trumps your personal experience. It trumps postmodernism. It, it must be the ultimate source of true understanding. It's the only place we can have true confidence about our salvation. It is this book. This is your measuring rod. This is what we're meant to live under. This is the gift that God has given to us so that he can speak to the very needs and issues of our life. Luther said, In all articles, the foundation of our faith must be God's word alone. And without God's word, there can be no article of faith. Your belief system and the direction that you want to go in life is not going to be found in you. It must be found in an authority outside of yourself. The Bible isn't here for you to stand in judgment of. It stands in judgment of you. It's the the ruler. It's the thing that you are to be measured against. But it's more than that. Sometimes when we talk about sola scriptura, like I just did, oops, we make it into a whip. Because it is a measure. And it is there to tell us when we fall short. But that's not what it is limited to. It is more than a rule rule book. And it's more than a to-do list. And it's more than a set of instructions. The revelation from God is a true source of confidence and joy for the child of God. It's a personal word that our Father whispers to us through. He whispers comfort to the child so that the child can fall asleep at night. In this book, Scripture reveals who God is. And it does expose our sin, but then it also describes Jesus and his sufficiency to deal with our sin. It promises forgiveness. It is the foundation of our hope. It's here, here in this book, 
the joy and peace and the knowledge of our Father is unleashed. This is the foundation, really, of any personal reformation. If you're going to have a personal reformation, it's going to come from here, from this book. Now, our world is hurting. Many people in our world are depressed. They're plagued with despair. And if we're honest, most Christians are too. Most Christians in our Western world are also hurting are also depressed and also plagued with despair. And this is what I want to say to you. Really, this is what it boils down to. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. God doesn't leave us in misery. He's given us his medicine, his comfort, his helping hand, and it's found here in this book. I want to show you how scripture alone can be a source of true happiness for the believer. And we don't have time to talk about every way the scripture encourages us. But I want us to try and focus on one. And it's on this doctrine of assurance. This is part of the Reformation that I think most people miss. Most most books written on the Reformation, they talk about all the solas. But they miss what I think was key in the Reformation. And it's the doctrine of assurance. You see, at the time of Martin Luther, the church had lost peace and happiness that is unleashed by this doctrine of assurance. In fact, 52 years before the birth of Martin Luther, so we're back in 1431, come with me, back to 1431, Joan of Arc was tried and condemned. Do you know what the church declared about Joan of Arc? Do you know what she was killed for? Assurance. Listen to the condemnation. This woman sins when she says she is as certain of being received into paradise as if she were already a partaker of glory. Seeing that on this earthly journey, no, no pilgrim knows if he is worthy of glory or of punishment, which is which the sovereign judge alone can tell. In other words, she was condemned and killed because she had the confidence she belonged to God, that her sin was atoned for, that she would go to heaven when she died to be with her Saviour in paradise. She was killed for assurance. The church of her day had robbed people from believing that the gospel guarantees life. And instead wanted them trapped in this scale-balancing uncertainty. Catholic, Catholic doctrine taught that no one could be sure whether they were going to enter heaven when they died. Again, it was a set of scales that they thought of. Your good deeds and your penance on one side and your sin on the other. And it was about getting the scales to tip in your favor. Only after death would we finally be able to read the scales and to see what way or what direction they had actually fallen on. And that's why assurance wasn't allowed to be. To believe that you were saved now was a great presumption. Luther hated the picture of the scales. And he called that thinking, quote, 
the monster of uncertainty, saying they teach doubt while God's righteousness declares certainty. For him, the words of Scripture preach peace to the soul and promise something secure for our future. He believed the Christian could know their sins have been forgiven and that they are a child of God and that their eternity in Christ is a certain thing. And where did he get that revolutionary thinking from? That's right. That's right, the Bible. He read it and believed it. He believed these things because he read these things. It's not a complicated system that Luther taught. The testimony of Scripture was his uh, unshakable foundation. My sins have been forgiven. Why? The Bible tells me so. I am a loved child of God. Why? It's a seminar now. I will go to heaven when I die. Why? Oh, that was very good. Very responsive. The reformed message of assurance was unlocked by the conviction of sola scriptura. And let me break that down. How does this speak about assurance? Sola scriptura declares the work is done. Today, theoretically, I'm assuming most people in this room agrees with Luther on this issue. Yet I think probably if we were being honest in this room... Some of us still struggle with doubts and even sometimes despair. Daily we're full of anxiety. We lack the assurance that the Bible grants us. And why is that? I think there's two inclinations that we have, two reasons. We've far too high a view of how we feel in a moment. And I think we've also, in contrast to that, far too low a view of Scripture. We often struggle to accept the assurance that our sins have been forgiven because our natural self controls our thinking, not the Bible. It's actually how we feel that seems to control how we think. We have an accusing conscience. Really, though we know the Bible says it is done, in our mind, we think we must do, do, do. I need to do more to earn these privileges. That the Bible talks about. We listen to sermons with selective hearing. We, we don't hear the bits about grace. We, we hear the to-dos and the do, the do nots. Everything that we listen to sometimes when we're not thinking rightly, we put through a filter and hear it as a call to parent better, to give better service, to give better to the church. Areas where we do fall short. And really what we take away is do, do, do. Rather than catch the hope that God's character and the revelation of Christ in Scripture declares it is done. I don't know, maybe it's because in our society you work to eat. Okay, You work to eat. You don't get paid if you don't do work. And so the idea that God has done it all and you have nothing to contribute, that's very countercultural, isn't it? In the real word, world, you work and then you get your reward. You work and then you get your pay. If you don't work, you 
don't get paid. It's not rocket, I'm not rocket science. I'm not going to ask you anything hard, okay? But the gospel's very different to that. And I think our natural heart struggles to... We can think about it and we accept it mentally, but struggle to embrace wholly the, the logic of the gospel that says we did nothing and yet we receive everything. Because that's what the gospel declares. <coughs> Have you ever thought about what is the hardest biblical concept for Christians to, to get their head around? What is the hardest biblical concept for Christians to get their head around? I don't think it's six-day creation. I don't think it's the exclusivity of the Christian faith. It's one way. I don't think it's doctrines like the Trinity that most Christians wrestle with. I think the hardest part are four words that we find in Ephesians 2 verse 8. Not your own doing. That's not the way my natural heart wants to think. It says, what can I do? How can I make it right? How can I make up the shortfall here? And yet the gospel says, not your own doing. So many people at the end of their life, Christians, sincere Christians, when you ask them about the confidence they have that they're going to heaven, they'll say and talk to you about, well, I did raise my kids well and got them off to a good start in life. I was faithful in the church. Thankful I was. Rarely when you ask them where the confidence is, do they say Christ did it all. Christ did it all. If you went to the children in your church and you asked them, what is a Christian? What would they say? Someone who goes to church? Someone who prays? Someone who tells others? Someone who helps? Someone who obeys God? The Bible says it's not of your own doing. A Christian is someone who is trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, it was read last night. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. You've got to forget how you feel. And instead, accept sola scriptura. Scripture declares salvation is an undeserved gift. Luther said very warmly in this part, My dear Pope, I think that's a good way to start. My dear Pope, you must not lord it over Scripture, nor must I, or anybody else, according to our own ideas. We should rather allow Scripture to rule and master us. And we ourselves should not be the masters. According to our own mad heads, setting ourselves above Scripture. How often do you cause yourself unnecessary misery because you listen to your own mad head? You listen to your own feelings rather than the book. I don't think most Christians get to taste the full sweetness of the assurance that we can have because though our faith is in Christ, our focus still remains on what I must do. 
God hasn't left us in the dark. He has declared to those who believe in his Son that they should not perish, but have it. Have everlasting life. God's word reveals a sure and certain future for the believer. You don't need to be crushed by doubt. You you don't need to be blown out because of a low sense of self-worth. You don't need to be full of despair because of the ongoing reality that sin is still in your heart. Rather, Luther said, if a Christian would simply trust Scripture, they would have, quote, a joyous heart that can say with certainty and assurance, I know of no more sins, for they are all lying on the back of Christ. In other words, the Bible says Jesus died for our sin. That's our past sin. That's today's sin. And that's our future sin. It's been put on the back of Christ. We can't be punished for that. God's word speaks hope to the very need that we have today. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and, have, and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Well, we're not on the mend. We have been healed. Isaiah, Isaiah, remember country I'm in. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. It's been paid. You're meant to have peace. You've been healed. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6 who gave himself as a ransom for all. The ransom's been paid. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, we have redemption through his blood. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. What? He died for us. It's been done. A past event has secured our reality today. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single, that's a good word, isn't it? Single sacrifice for sin. He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because the job was done. You don't sit down whenever there's more work to be done. He sat down because that single sacrifice satisfied his father. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The verdict is declared in God's word of truth. These passages scream out that if you are trusting in Christ's work, your burden has been put to the side. It's been transferred to him. He has paid it all. It's wrong to walk around this world pretending that it's still on your shoulders. It's not. God's word doesn't allow you to think that way. We need to forget our feelings. Forget our desire to contribute. Forget our desire for self-worth. Our worth is only in Christ. Whose word is trustworthy. He declared at the 
close of his cross experience, and we mentioned it this morning, John 19, verse 30, what does it say? It is finished. How dare we say it is not? And I've got something to offer here. Luther discovered that as Christians, we can be free from worry about whether we will qualify and instead be filled with a glorious hope because Jesus has declared it is finished. Sola Scriptura assures us the work is done. Now secondly, Sola Scriptura assures us we are united with Christ. Now this isn't just, sometimes I think of this doctrine, or I used to think I should say, of this doctrine as quite mystical and hard to get your hand around, but it's not. It's an everyday doctrine that should give you confidence as you walk through this life. See, Roman Catholic theology at the time of Luther, and today still, it teaches communion with Christ is part of the key to your ongoing Christian walk. You, you have to pray so you get communion. You need to study so that uh, you can earn that closeness to God. You, you need to do acts of piety and acts of penance so that he can be, uh, you, you can get, nudge your way closer. You're, you're meant to take time to sit in quiet meditation so that it feels that there's some connection there between you and the Almighty. You do all of those things in that system, hoping to be drawn into a nearness with God that you haven't experienced to, to that point. Connection in that, with Christ in that system is something that you foster primarily through the sacraments, but it's something that you are working towards. You're working yourself into closer relationship with God. But that's not what the Bible says. John 3, 16. Okay, ready? This is like, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I know we've got about seven different versions represented here and that can make it clunky, but you did very good. Okay, that was very good. Do you know what? That, that phrase in the, what, that well-known verse, whosoever believes in him. And let me focus your attention to that word in. Do you know the Greek word is actually in two. Now, that reads really bad in English. Whosoever believes into him. It's actually bad Greek too. You don't find that anywhere else in Greek literature apart from in the Gospel of John. But John doesn't make mistakes under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's there on purpose. What we do is not simply learn something about Jesus and keep it in our mind. Believe in him. Rather, as Christians, we have believed into him. We, we, we've been super glued to, to Jesus. The moment you are converted, your future in, and, uh, and, and your eternal life is a guaranteed thing. Because it's not you. You're glued to Jesus. You're in Christ. The gospel glues us to him so that no longer is our identity in ourselves alone. It would be a very sad thing if that was the case. 
Rather, our identity is found in the one that we are cemented to, in Christ. We have a joint identity now. You think of baptism. We go into the waters and we're declaring, old me has died. And what has come up? New me. No longer myself. My identity is in in Christ. We're a new being infused to Christ. You think of the reformers and contrast them with those Roman Catholics of their day. They also prayed. Did you know that? That shouldn't be a scandal to you. (laughs) They also studied very much so. They did acts of piety and they continually repented of their sin also. And they definitely took time to meditate on God's word. But they didn't do it to foster a nearness, to nudge forward that relationship. Rather, they did it as an expression of something they already had. It was an expression of thankfulness. I think that's a wonderful thing about this doctrine of being in Christ. You don't have to simply put on a performance so that God will smile at you today. Rather, that's all out of the picture. Every time you do do something right, it's an expression of thanks. It's just born out of, wow, he's done this. I want to worship him. And that actually changes the way we feel about God. It makes everything that we do in him a wonderful and joyful thing. We come to church not to earn acceptance. We come to church because we are accepted. It's such a a release to realize that we're not fostering nearness. Rather, we are already permanently, not just near, we're into Christ. We're stuck to him. He is us now. Luther said, but so far as justification is concerned, Christ and I must be so closely attached that he lives in me and I in him. What a marvelous way of speaking. Because he lives in me, whatever grace, whatever righteousness, whatever life, whatever peace and salvation there is in me is all Christ's. Nevertheless, it is mine as well. By the cementing and attachment that are through faith, by which we have become as one body in the spirit. In other words, when a person is converted, what happens to them, as we said, is they are super glued to Christ. The Bible says the same. It doesn't use the word super glued. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 and because of him you are in Christ Jesus Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 we've been made alive together with Christ Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 we are created in Christ Jesus now Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. You are sanctified, this ongoing process, in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ you are sons of God. Luther said said that it is not simply through faith in Christ that Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness and all that he has become ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. I think that's amazing. I think too often as Christians, we still imagine ourselves as under the 
judging gaze of God. And we kind of carry ourselves forward towards heaven. He's cleared the path, but we're carrying ourselves forward. And it's a, it's a slog. And we worry that our legs will give way. And we won't have the strength to take that next step. But that's not true. Rather, we're fused to Jesus Christ. When we don't have the energy to take this step, he takes a step. His muscle and power drives us forward. That's the wonder of union with Christ. We are super glued to him and his identity. When Jesus hung on the cross, by faith it was as, it was as if I hung on the cross and my sin was dealt with at that moment. I now stand clean because I'm super glued to Christ. And each day, each and every day, he ensures that in my new identity, I am a forgiven, adopted child of God. That can never be taken away from me. When God looks at me, he doesn't see Andrew. He sees a life fused to Jesus Christ. And that's why he's moved to love me. Believe me, my wife struggles sometimes to love me. But God doesn't struggle because when he looks at me, he sees a life used to Jesus Christ. In other words, you're not a converted individual. There's no individual about you. If you're converted, you are now in Christ. You're joint to him. That can't be taken away from you because it's divinely ensured. It was the Holy Spirit who fused you together. And it can't be broken. This union with Christ is central to the whole gospel. And it is where assurance is found. Each step of the road that you take to heaven is now taken in Christ. And therefore it is guaranteed that we will be brought all the way home. Luther said, but faith must be taught correctly. Namely that by it you are so cemented to Christ. That he is in you and you are now one person which cannot be separated but remains attached to him forever and declares I am as Christ. And Christ in turn says I am as that sinner who is attached to me and I to him. In other words, the Bible assures us that the moment we become Christians, our identity is no longer in ourselves. It is found in Jesus. His death is now our death. His punishment is my punishment. His resurrection is our resurrection. His verdict, it is finished, is now my verdict. It has been finished. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said, the determining factor of my existence is no longer my past. It's Christ's past. That's why I stand, because of Christ's past. If you're a Christian, your union with Christ is the guarantee of your future. Scott mentioned the Heidelberg Catechism last night. One of the questions in that catechism reads like this. What is your only comfort in life and death? Do you know what the answer is? That I, with body and soul both in life and in death, I'm not my own, but belong to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins 
and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of the Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Isn't that beautiful? Why do we know we will go to heaven? The Bible says so. A- amen, son. Amen. <laughs> Preach it. That's exactly right. He's done it. It's been declared. Our confidence is never in a prayer I said. It's in the Savior I love. Actually, no, it's not. It's in the Savior who loves me. The Bible says it so succinctly and beautifully in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our identity is now in Christ and that is our assurance. I mentioned the book earlier, Why the Reformation Still Matters by uh, Mike Greaves and Tim Chester. Brilliant book. They say this, Too often I forget that Christ has become my identity. And I think I am what I do. And that is when things start to go wrong. When I am doing well, I then become proud and unbearable. And when I am not, I curl up in defeated misery. Either way, when I forget my union with Christ and allow other things to define me, I become ridiculous and dangerous. But when I remember Christ defines me, I find myself much more immune, both to pride and to failure. In him I am no failure at all, but triumphant. And in him, what have I to be proud of? But him. Not only does the Bible assure us that he has paid the price fully, but it also assures us that we are united to Christ. We are super glued to him. He will bring to completion the work he has begun in you. Sola Scriptura assures us the work is done. Secondly, Sola Scriptura assures us of our union with Christ. And lastly and quickly, Sola Scriptura, this is my favourite. They're all good, but this is my (laughs) favourite. Assures us we are children of God. We are children of God. The Bible describes us as being adopted. That's a wonderful thought. Adopted. It it is that we are justified. The the justification pictures the judge. And the judge with his uh, gavel, he hits the, the desk and declares us free. We are now righteous. It's a legal declaration. But the doctrine of adoption pictures not the judge. It pictures dad. It pictures our father. And it's a very intimate picture that is presented in scripture. Adoption declares that me, I am loved. And I am cared for by the almighty. Wherever we come from in the world, if we are trusting in Christ, we are 
one family. We are part of God's family even more. Adoption pictures us as children taken by the father and strapped in the car on the journey home. Turn to John chapter 1 first off. This is terrible. We've been talking about Sola Scriptura and I've been barking messages at you and I haven't got you to look up one reference yet. There's something fundamentally flawed about that. (laughs) So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1 verse 12. Now this is a verse that is so simple. There's nothing complicated here. A little kid could get this. And yet it should be a verse that you can't get your head around. John chapter 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to what? To become children of God. Can you imagine? There are angels flying around the throne of God all the time that have to cover their faces. They've never sinned. They've never displeased him in any way. And yet there is a a distance that must exist. But you, I don't mean to pick on you, you're You're not as great as those angels. (laughs) Certainly not as innocent as they are. And yet you have access to him in the most intimate and personal way. You can pray with all legitimacy and say, Father, that's amazing. That's unbelievable. It's such a profound thing. We are children of the living God. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and look at verse 14. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8 verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is an unbelievable passage. It it, it talks about, I think, how we actually feel. That there is still a fear in our hearts. Do I really know him? Will he really accept me? Will he really embrace me given what I am and how depraved my heart actually is? And this says there is no fear. In fact, it says his spirit is whispering to our spirit. As if it's, we have a little girl in our house who's four and she's at that annoyance stage (laughs) where she's scared of the dark at night. And you have to go in and you have to whisper that little assurance, I'll check on you. It'll be okay. Nothing can happen. We're here. That's the picture here. But it's not, it's not me with my four-year-old. 
It's God of the universe and he's whispering to our spirit. And what does he say? Look at it. Verse 15. What does he say? We've a spirit of adoption. We can cry what? That's unbelievable. I think Paul's is scratching his head here and he's really panicked because it almost sounds blasphemous what he's saying. He, he struggles to find uh, language intimate enough. And so he grabs this Aramaic word, Abba Father. It's hard to even get an English equivalent. Maybe, maybe Daddy. It's not meant to be cheap. It's just such an intimate connection that exists is a very vulnerable word a word of closeness a word that declares he cares a word that declares we are always accepted by our Abba Father that he constantly wants our best I want my children to do well I'll do anything to try and help them in that regard but but the king of the universe who can actually make a difference. He wants our best. He will ensure we will be glorified. There's so much more in this doctrine of adoption. Uh, Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Verse 23. And not only the creation... But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now this is, remember, the same chapter. So he said earlier in the chapter, verse 14 to 17, look, you are adopted. You're part of God's family. But now he's saying in verse 23, a time is coming when you will be adopted. In other words, though you are adopted today, there is still a fuller and and better adoption that is coming. Your status as God's child is certain. 1 John 3, verse 2, again, another reference. You are children of God. But there is this fuller application of your adoption that is coming. The only way I could liken it is, it's as if God has met with us and adopted us. The, the moment the adopted father meets their child as dad for the first time. And he takes them out. And he brings them to the car. And he straps them in his car. And he gets in the front. And he's driving with them every part of the journey. And they exist in that union as father and son. Or father and daughter. They, they are a new family unit. He is their Abba father. But there is a sense where we're driving down the road and where we're going is home. Home. That's where the family is. And though he is still my father and that's not going to change, what a wonderful thing to be the family at home. We are adopted, but soon we're going to be with our father at home. At home. Such a wonderful picture. It's only going to get better and our intimacy with our Abba Father only going to get fuller when we get home. 
Sola Scriptura assures us the work is done, that we are united to Christ, that we are adopted into God's family. It's absolutely amazing. And it all comes from this book. Without sounding like Joel Osteen. (laughs) Here is the key to living as a happy Christian. This is where you can have peace. Because the Bible tells me so. Here is where you can have assurance. Because the Bible tells me so. Because God's word says... In that I can trust. Most Christian anxiety and doubt can be directly traced back to a lack of knowledge about or a lack of confidence in the book. What we truly need is greater trust in what the Bible says. How can you know this morning that Jesus loves you? You're good, you're good. Jesus loves me. This I know. That's good. I felt like Darren there. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. That's exactly it. That's our confidence. That's that's where our assurance lies. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have not left us in the dark, but that you have given us your revelation, that it is sufficient for us, that in this book we have confidence, we have reminders that we need, we have the, the, the assurance that we need to get through each and every day, that your spirit through this book whispers to our spirit and declares we are adopted. We thank you that you have loved us, And we thank you that we can say that with confidence because the Bible tells us so. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from despair, that you would protect us from depression, that you would protect us from that magnetic (coughs) magnetic, uh, temptation to pull our eyes downward into ourselves. And instead, Lord, you would help us to see that we can have confidence because your word declares it. Lord, we ask that you would help us to know this book more. We ask that you would help us to truly value it. We ask that you would protect us from leaning on feelings, leaning on tradition, leaning on reason, and instead that you would plant our feet in this book. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Does anybody have any questions? Yes. For for someone to believe all of what we've been through today, absolutely certain in the word of Christ in his truth and his promises to his people but aren't convinced that they're one of his people and so therefore none of the truths apply Mm -hmm. again it's it's not it can't be just a head knowledge that first uh Whosoever believes in me, it's believe into me that there is, it, it is a collapsing upon Christ. It is a, a collapsing on his, his person. 
You think of um, the greatest contrast in Scripture, I think, is Judas and Peter. You have Peter who struggles and denies and falls away, and you have Judas who struggles and denies and betrays Jesus. And both of them, I, I, I think Matthew's account of Judas is terrifying. Because Judas comes and he is full of a sincere remorse. In fact, he actually says, he admits his wrongdoing. He admits he has fallen short and he should never have betrayed this good man. And he's so broken in his spirit that he goes out and he hangs himself. But was Judas saved in that moment? No. He knew he was wrong. He knew he was a sinner. He knew Christ was right. But that's not the same as being saved. Whereas Peter, what's the difference with Peter? They come to a beach, have a barbecue. (laughs) It's not the barbecue. Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Third time, Peter, do you love me? And he says, God, you know all things. And he's true in that. What he's saying is right. You know all things. You know that I love you. The difference between those two men is not their experience, not their understanding, not even their understanding of Jesus. It was an affection in the heart. That affection came about by the work of God. Peter could truly say, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. I think we have to be very careful that we don't think that we are saved because we know the gospel. We are saved because we have a genuine love now, a God-given love for uh, God himself. It's given to us by God and it's a love directed towards God. That's what saves us. We need to be so careful that 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 is our true motivation in, in our Christian walk, that we truly love God. And for an individual who doesn't feel that affection at this moment, and maybe I don't know, maybe there's somebody in this room who isn't in that category, you know there's something true here. And you're genuinely here searching and seeking and wrestling with and wondering, why don't I have an affection for Christ? What do you do? Yeah, that's exactly right, So, The Bible says, he who seeks me will find me if he seeks me with his whole heart. That's a promise. That's a promise. That if you're that person, you're sitting here wondering, I, I know the truth, but I'm not sure I'm the elect, and I don't know what to do about that. Well, the Bible gives a promise to you too. It says, if you're sincere and you want to find, you will find. If you persevere and you seek, and the, 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 the call of Scripture is to search. I think all of us, we need to make sure that, that, that categorizes us. There's too many warnings in Scripture. I, have you noticed how much of the New Testament is full of warning passages? Mm-hmm. Well, look, look, listen to me very honestly here. I believe God carries us all the way home. I just told you that. But I think there's a lot of people who think they are in Christ who aren't yet in Christ. 
And those warning passages are given for those cold-hearted people who look warm-hearted in the church. They're they're warning passages with teeth because we need them. And uh, uh, you have a, a Demas who forsakes the work because he loved the things of this world. That, that kind of falling away is nothing new. But the reality was, Demas, though he was interested in Christ, he, he even risked his life for Christ, he was never truly in Christ. And that's what we need to make sure of this morning. Yeah? What would you say to those who doubt the inerrancy of the Scripture? You're wrong. do you you know there's two things one is I honestly think it is just it is a belief and an approach I think if you accept that this book has been warped in any way I don't know how you call it God's word Maybe the best reflections of men about God, but it's not God's word. That's not how he he is. He's a God of truth. We were just preaching about this a couple of weeks ago in our church. If you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, and you go down to verse 35, Jesus is having a debate with the religious leaders of his day. And I think it's so significant to look at how Jesus viewed scripture. It's really for the start of verse 36, I want you to notice, but I'll read from verse 35 to set the context. It says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Then he says in verse 36, he's about to quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. So he's about to quote scripture. So he's setting up his quotation for scripture and he says, verse 36, David himself, a normal human being, in the Holy Spirit declared. That's the same language as we just talked about in Christ. David into the Holy Spirit here. The same way we said, it's not our legs that are moving forward. It's Christ and our legs that are jointly moving forward towards the kingdom. Here, this writer pictures David's pen and he says it's not David who's scribbling as he hears God's word. Rather, it's his and the Holy Spirit's hand that is scribbling down God's word. The the, 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 the cemented picture, the the picture of fused a fused being is used here to describe how the Holy Spirit inspired men of the past. And I think if you look on it that way, you either have to say that the Bible is true, or else if the Bible is potentially untrue with error, then God is potentially untrue and with error. I think that's a dangerous, I actually think that's a heretical category to put God into. That's not the God who has revealed himself in this word. Now, the other way I would answer that, and I don't want to sound mystical, but there is a mystical aspect to the word. We've been going through Mark's gospel. I can't get over how intimately connected the scriptures are with the scriptures and how we do scratch the surface of it. And I keep finding new things that surprise me. It's just a wonderful thing to be able to, to... 
look at God's word and to study it on a longer period of time and just realize this book is alive and active. That's not just a claim of scripture. It's something that I think you experience as you move along your Christian walk with God. And if maybe you're a newer Christian, keep studying the scriptures and you'll find that the longer you continue to go back to the book and you sit under good teaching, you're going to be shocked that this book never grows old. And it speaks to itself and it's one completely connected story. I've never found a contradiction in it. I haven't studied every single passage yet. But I have the suspicion that I never will find a contradiction. And the more that I study, the more my head will be blown at how I can't exhaust what's in this book. There's not a system that I can learn in a few years. I've done too many degrees. I look young. I feel awful. (laughs) Too many degrees. And they're all in the Bible. I feel I've so much still to learn. Every week I feel that I've so much more to learn. And I think I think that's just the nature of we're dealing with the word of an infinite God. Any other questions? Yeah. So when people ask you why are you a Christian, how would you explain that? Yeah. How am I a Christian? Because I go to Houston Church. Yeah. No, I, th- I think this is your opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Yeah. You can say, God has worked in me. I, <clears throat> when our young people in church ask me that type of question, I to try and help them think through their testimony, tell them the gospel response always involves three parts, A, B, C, because uh, hopefully their education at least has helped them remember the first three <laughs> letters of the alphabet. <clears throat> you've got to acknowledge your sin. You've got to believe in Christ, and you've got to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I just tell them that, you know, that you, when you're sharing the gospel, you say that God has worked in me. It's God who's done it. But he's brought me to a point where I realize just what a mess I actually am. That I fall short of his standard. And he also uh, brought me to a point where I looked at scriptures and I saw that Jesus was perfect. That he did nothing wrong. And yet he died on the cross so that people could be forgiven. And because of what I learnt, I went further and I actually asked him to forgive me and asked him to change me and asked me to be one of his children. said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner, because he says in his word that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I believe God's word is true. And that's, that's why I'm a Christian this morning. I have confidence in that promise. I think if we can bring them back to the message of the Bible as quickly as possible, other than talk about ourselves, that's a healthy thing. Anyone else? Yes. Colossians 3.11. Are you familiar? I, I know it's there, but you, <laughs> I'm going to look it up right now. Christ is all in all. Yeah. That's a good, yeah. 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 So in a nutshell, the answer to your question is from, from my own happiness. For, sorry, say? The answer to the gentleman's question, why am I a Christian, is for the sake of your own happiness, right? No. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's the beauty, I think. It, it, God has so wired this gospel in such a way that his glory 
It does both, but it's not the drive. I'm not a Christian because, well, when I get to eternity, I won't be a Christian because I will be happy. I'll be a Christian, hopefully, as I'm sanctified then, because I, I, I truly understand the beauty of God. We are made for his glory. And that uh, we'll see here tonight. I don't want to steal Scott's thunder. But he, he's, he designed us for his glory. And, and, and that's actually where happiness truly exists. Uh, you, you, you're right in the, that it's unleashed. My drive isn't to be happy, but it's, a, it's an overspill of experiencing, uh, working according to our creation design brief of glorifying God. That's such a, a freeing and exhilarating thing. Samuel Rutherford, the old Scottish pastor and hymn writer, he said that when he gets to glory and God hands him the crown, he will not look at the dazzling crown, but at the nail-pierced hands that give it. I think that's, that's a helpful way to think when we, we think about how these things all work out. It is true that we receive the crown. It is true that we experience happiness here and now. But, but our attention and our drive through the Holy Spirit's work in our life is at the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yes. What do you think of the scripture that says in Acts 16:31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Yeah. And what, what, in what way? I think it's a good text, but... Well... When he's referring to your household, that yeah. you mean your members of your family? Are, are going to be saved as well? Yeah. I, I think he's saying there, if you believe, you will be saved. And if they believe, the promise is exactly the same to them too. It's not just because, jailer, you have met with us tonight that, that, that you can be saved. It's not just because the, the prison gates have flung open and you're full of fear in this moment that you can be saved. Rather, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. Just in the same way that if your children believe in Jesus Christ, they can be saved. In the same way that God so loved the whole world that if they believe in Jesus Christ, they can be saved. I think that's what what, uh, Paul is saying there. I think we've got to take those verses and put them into context with all these other verses. Let the clear text speak to the unclear text. And I, I think that fits very neatly in there as well. I think it gives us a lot of hope too, isn't it? The message our family needs, the message our children need is exactly the same message that affected us. It's good. Anything else? I have no idea what time it is. Time to stop. Thank you. Thank you.